This morning we are still in James chapter 3 and some people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament and it it pretty much I I think is because it's very practical, a lot of wisdom and it's filled with practical ways to apply that wisdom and and we're going to camp out in in James chapter 3 today and we're going to discover how godly wisdom practically affects our lives and the lives of those around us, particularly in regards to the words that we use. And so today my sermon is titled, Wise Words Bring Hope. So whenever we're faced with a situation or presented with a set of circumstances, we choose how we respond. And when we choose how we respond, we can either choose wisdom or folly in our response. If we choose wisdom, if we make a wise choice, we will carefully consider the options, we will carefully consider our words, and we will choose words and actions that lead to a healthy outcome. But on the other hand, if we fail to choose wisdom, we often end up making foolish choices, choosing foolish words, and we can end up making uh, something worse. And sometimes we can even hurt people with our words and actions simply because we didn't choose wisely. I know that uh, I'm terrible at just jumping in and speaking based on what I think I've heard when I haven't always heard all the information or or heard all the information correctly. Just ask Kelly. The amount of times I just jump the gun and and make a, a comment that's either not been helpful or that has been hurtful or, I don't know, not been healthy and and sometimes isn't even correct based on what I think I've heard, that my brain has translated from what words I thought came out of mouths, but then not necessarily is true. That's not necessarily what was said. And, you know, I think I've caused a few arguments because of this. And, and it's a bit ridiculous, because you'd think that after, you know, we've been married 15 years, I would have learnt by now. I'll try, but Kelly's saying no. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, hon. Yeah, it's, it's the truth. It's the truth. I'm not learning that one quickly. But it, 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 I'm not. I'm not in employing wisdom in those moments. I'm, I'm, I think I've heard correctly, or I jumped in halfway through because I feel like I have to defend myself, or I don't know. I'm sure we all have things that come on us like that. Are there areas in your life where you too can see how foolish words? and choices impact those around you. Well, hopefully today will be an encouragement that as we choose how we respond, to choose wisdom over folly, and let our wise words bring hope instead of foolish words bringing hurt. Last week after I preached, I got down and I was just having a chat with Kelly, and um, I I said, now I've got to put my message in action. You know, I I don't like preaching James, because it's very convicting of the preacher first and foremost before, you know, I'm sure that it even comes out to you this morning and you get to wrestle with it now this week ahead. I've wrestled with this with it all the week gone. So, you know, I'm a week in front, but I hopefully that, that, that wrestling will occur as we open the words of the Bible and, and hear what James is saying to us today. So if you've got them, turn to James chapter 3, verse 13. I think I've got the ESV for this week for some reason. Um, I, I liked it better, better words in that than the NIV. You know, some people are like, you know, NIV is like the nearly inspired version. You know, it's it's a difference in translation because ESV is sort of word for word, literal. So then it causes you 
to actually, if, if the words don't work together well in a clear sentence, which it doesn't always in the ESV, you have to then work on on how the, the interpretation of those words should be. Um, and so for someone like myself who studies the Bible a little bit more often, and particularly when I'm pre- preaching, I want to get the depth of the words. I don't just want to have somebody else do that work for me and give one explanation of that translation like the NIV chooses. NIV sort of tries to do thought for thought, whereas the ESV does word for word. And so when I'm studying scripture, I will head down the literal translations so that that translation effort is done by me as I go through and look at what Greek words, and we're going to do that a bit today. Look, go, go do some Greek study and training this morning um, in, in James chapter 3, but that's later on. First of all, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So who is wise? Well, let's see that wisdom displayed in the way that you act, in the things that you do. Wisdom is not merely intellectual, but it's also behavioural. See, in Roman culture, meekness was very much seen as weakness. They valued bravado and confidence over gentleness and meekness. But Jesus elevated meekness to a primary Christian virtue. The meek shall inherit what? The earth. That's right. You know Matthew 5, 5. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness, humility, meekness. These are all virtues that are valued in the kingdom of God and show godly wisdom at work. See, meekness comes not from cowardice or passivity, but rather from trusting God and therefore being set free from anxious self-promotion. James 3.14 But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So if we were to consider what might be the opposite of meekness, I reckon that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition would have to be centre stage as the antithesis of true wisdom characterised by meekness. They are also far different from the righteous character of a jealous God who appropriately yearns for his own honour and the loyal devotion of his people while the envious yearn for what does not belong to them. Selfish ambition is a divisive willingness to split the group in order to achieve personal power and prestige. It says that I'm more important than everyone else and my ambitions are worth more than the ambitions of others and so I should by right be unhindered in my quest to promote me and my ideas over and above those of others. It's all me, 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 which is so opposite to the humility of the gospel, which says that by the grace of God, it's all thanks to Jesus. James says that these selfish ambitions, these boastings, they are not from above. They are earthly. 
They are unspiritual and that they are demonic. So he, de- he describes these you know, terms and they, they sort of go from bad to worse. You know, they're earthbound. There is no good in them. Uh, they are absolutely sensual rather than spiritual and their origin is in the cosmic powers of darkness. That's what James is saying. These, when left unchecked in the church, can lead to a chaotic frenzy of fighting and lead to an unstable and restless culture. The answer to this chaos and disorder, this unstable and restless culture, is to seek wisdom from above, which produces character qualities that ooze with hope, beginning with purity and concluding with peace. And so now I want to dig down into these character qualities a bit and see what we can learn from wisdom from above. And first up, we have the word pure. For those Greek scholars amongst us, you would know that this word is the Greek word hagnos. Who's a Greek scholar amongst us? My hands are down too, don't worry. Software helps me out greatly. See, this word translated here as pure is the Greek word hagnos, and and that has a meaning that that is greater than just pure. We all know that, that Greek words have this amazing ability to wrap concepts up within a word, which we sort of do in English, but not to the great extent. Um, we sort of have a lot more words to mean the one thing, whereas the Greek says this and all those words are in there. Uh, so that's sort of how it works. And so this includes ideas of innocence, of being blameless, ideas of modesty and, of course, purity. That's what godly wisdom is. It's pure. And when we develop our character with godly wisdom, it, it will reflect his nature. It will reflect his purity and the gospel really matters here because we are impure that's what where we start when with the gospel is i need a savior we are the opposite of pure yet through the completed work of christ on the cross his purity becomes our purity his innocence becomes our innocence that's what the gospel does for us and so why not choose to live that reality rather than the busted and broken one we so often do. We choose how we respond. And we can choose to respond as people who have been saved by the gospel and act out of that purity that we have in Christ Jesus in our interactions with others. The second word we come to is peaceable. And uh, the, the Greek is irenikos, just for those playing at home. And this means to be disposed to peace. And from the Hebrew, it also has connotations of being profitable and blissful. And I want to look at how that word is used in all its fullness. Because it's also used in Hebrews 12.11. And it's pivotal to that verse. It says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's the same word, peaceable, as here, that, that, that yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that, that's the kind of, of peaceable people we can be. Getting there, though, can be painful. It can be a chore and hard work to undertake the discipline to become peaceable. But it yields a fruit of righteousness, and that, that's got to be worth it. Epiakes, gentle. once worked with this guy who was the opposite of gentle. I mean, if he was on a computer typing away, bang, 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 like was how he typed. It was violent, right? If he was doing anything, it was just 
so rough. We were flabbergasted at all the different things he'd break. Things that were like, you know, just to, to the regular person, unbreakable. But yet the way he did life was violent. There was nothing gentle about this person. He was the incarnation of the opposite of gentleness. I, 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 I still marvel at the way he just did life. It was, was so painful. And it's sort of, that, that's the opposite. But James, he celebrates gentleness. Using force that is suitable, that is fair, that is reasonable, that is mild and and being patient, gentleness is a worthy virtue to cultivate. And of course, there'll be times when force is required, but a wise approach just doesn't jump into using force as the first option, like the guy I used to work with did. Taking a careful and considered approach is more important. Gentle, open to reason. This is uh, the lovely word, eupithes. Sounds a bit like a... You know, you pithies. <laughs> I don't know. It's Greek, hey? There we go. But uh, it's open to reason. Have you ever met someone who is just stubborn? They are unteachable. They think they know best and are completely unable to be reasoned with. Well, not to harp on about the same example, but this guy who was also uh, violent in the way he did things was also the opposite of open to reason. He was just untouchable. He thought he knew best. He he, he was couldn't he knew everything. So he he, could, he couldn't learn anything new. He already knew it. He, he was an, an expert on every subject. If you started talking, oh yeah, we went and did this. You know, oh yeah, you know, I did this there and I did that. And I did, you know, and and everything was like he's an expert in everything. He he, he always had to be in control. He couldn't let anybody else's idea float. It was basically, I, I, I'm the one that, that knows everything and you just need to fall in line. And, and, it, and it didn't work well for him. It ended up being his undoing and his downfall because he was just unteachable. You couldn't have a conversation and he wouldn't give a millimetre, let alone an inch. You know, it was I, I'm just, anyway, I'm glad I'm past that. But have you come across people like that? He was one of the most insufferable people I've ever met. He was so closed-minded. James, however, commends us to be people who are open to reason, people who are able to listen and adjust, people who are teachable. Godly wisdom should be able to easily persuade us and bring a compliant spirit in us. Another description of godly wisdom that James gives us is mestos ilios, full of mercy. Literally, to be filled with mercy, compassion, kindness and blessing. And this filling, it comes from God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And as we have received God's mercy, we are able to act with mercy towards others. Not only is godly wisdom full of mercy, it's also full of good fruits, agathos karpos. This idea James is presenting is like that of, of birthing good fruit. So you don't pick that up in the NIV, but this word is more of a 
a passage of birth. Um, it has that, that whole connotation of a, of a newborn baby being birthed. Good offspring that bear beneficial and profitable actions. We can choose to act out of the wisdom that is from above and birth good fruit in our lives through our actions. I love that word picture. I think we should just like put like agathos karpos up on the wall, you know, birthing good fruits. I don't know what sort of imagery you might have with that, but yeah, we should also be adiacritos, impartial. This is the only place in the entire Bible that this word is used. Isn't that amazing? Out of all the scripture written in Greek, and even when they say, okay, this Hebrew word is this Greek word, and that's the same word, which often happens. This is, this is it, adiacritos. And this really does just mean impartial and undistinguishing. God's wisdom from above is available to all who seek it. It does not discriminate against anyone. It doesn't distinguish mature Christians from those just starting out. God's wisdom from above can be cultivated in the lives of all believers, no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord. It is impartial. It is also sincere. Guess what the word for sincere is in Greek? Enipokritos. What does it sound like? Not hypocrisy, right? Sincere, genuine, sincere, unfeigned, real, without hypocrisy. God's wisdom from above is the real deal. It is sincere and genuine. And God's wisdom from above can be nurtured and cultivated in us. We can choose to respond out of heavenly wisdom in all circumstances, which can lead to real and lasting peace. Verse 18, And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, there's a difference between keeping the peace. See, that, that often means the word compromise, keeping the peace. But we're not called to be peacekeepers, are we? What does it say here? Make peace. We're to be peacemakers. We're to make peace. So if you've got two people and they're coming from completely different points of view, the worldly wisdom would say, well, get them to the point where they can compromise and, and work together. So each of them gives something up, right? And so you end up with this, this end result that no one's happy with. But uh, it's peace because they're not fighting anymore. There's a solution that, and so so success is the the absence of of fighting. But really, both people are just like, oh, this sucks. But I'll just go and I'll just you know keep the peace, keep the peace. No, no, no. As Christians, we're to make peace, make peace. If Jesus had have come down and and um you know said to to Satan, you know, I want to free the world of of sin and shame and guilt. And I'm going to do that by my work on the cross. If he had, have, instead of doing that without consulting Satan, instead of gone to Satan and said, "Hey, look, just sort of want to let you know this is what I'm doing. I just want to, you know, work out some sort of way that we can work together on this, and maybe you give me a bit, I'll give you a bit, we'll compromise." You know, what do you reckon we would have ended up with? I reckon after that 40 days of temptation in the desert, and Satan said, "You know, um, I will give you." all of this, I reckon Jesus would have said yes. But did he say yes? No. He didn't want to keep peace. He wanted to make peace. And he had to die to do that. I think that's pretty significant. The legacy of those who bring peace rather than conflict is a harvest of righteousness. The fruit that comes from peacemaking in the Christian community will be the righteous conduct that God will bless. So what other ways can we be people who bring peace? Through the conduct that is right before God? Well, chapter 3 starts and finishes teaching about the tongue. And in the middle is this 
this section on, on wisdom. What is wisdom? And so it, it, is, it is encapsulated by, by talk about our tongue and how we should use our tongue. And so I reckon that's the primary way that we should employ godly wisdom is with our tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So here James is establishing the general principle that small things can cause great results. Small things can cause great results. Don't worry, short people. Small things can cause great results. And this is more specifically, though, here, applied to the power of the tongue to destroy, which we'll see firstly, uh, shortly. Um, but first he talks about teachers. T- teachers were very important in the early church. And I believe teaching is still important in our church today. Sound biblical doctrine being taught well is, is really important. Uh, however, it comes with, with great responsibilities. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the place of a teacher, particularly in the first century, was an elevated status. That they called Jesus teacher, rabbi. You know, being a teacher was, it was an elevated position. Sadly, I don't think it carries as much weight in culture today, does it, being a teacher? But uh, this was often then would draw people to positions which weren't healthy because they're doing it for selfish ambition, to, to promote themselves. You know, a bit like people who go into politics because they want the power, selfish ambition. However, with greater responsibility comes greater expectations by God and teachers will be judged by a greater strictness. Literally, we'll be judged with greater judgment since... We are, as teachers, accountable for more. You know, I'm, I'm accountable as a teacher for what I teach because when I pre- am preaching, that affects not just me. It affects each person hearing the message today. And so I don't do this lightly. I do it often with fear and trepidation, understanding that I will be called to account for what I'm teaching before God. James says that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. You see, a person's word reflects his character, and so they are a key to who we are. Jesus said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James emphasizes the importance of good works, but also acknowledges that all Christians stumble. We all fail in many ways, and James's call for good works, therefore, must not be seen as expecting perfection. You know, we will attain perfection at one point in time. That is not yet. We will attain that in heaven. That, that, that is what a perfect man. We will be perfect people in heaven. But it's something we should still be striving for. We should still always seek to grow in our holiness as believers. And so we should seek perfection with our words, as unlikely as that is, and, and un, unlikely as we will ever attain it here in the flesh, we should still strive. We then see James give two examples of something uh, so small that can have such a massive impact on the world around it. He gives the example of a bit in a horse's mouth and the small rudder of a ship. Now, I'm glad Christine is here today because 
I have zero in understanding of horses. But Christine, can you please just quickly give an indication of what, a, what on earth a bit does? So when you're pulling on the reins, you're pulling on that piece of metal to cause them discomfort. And so when you pull back, they stop. Yes. Okay. And so I'm assuming if you pull one side, they'll probably go that way as well. And yeah. Okay. So it, it brings control. A small piece of metal in the mouth of a horse brings control. Lovely. I googled and I tried to put that in words. I was like, nah, I'll just pray Christine's here. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, and, and so uh, a ship as well. You know, I marvel at how small things can control such large ob- objects. Um, have you ever seen, you know, you might be channel surfing of an evening and come across that program that's called Mighty Ships? I, I marvel at the enormity of some of those ships on the ocean. Uh, you know, I just... Uh, they are some of these these vessels are just ginormous, and when you see them being built in dry dock before they're launched, you see it's like a small city that then somehow floats around the ocean, and then you look at the back end of it. I love looking at back ends of these massive ships. You see these propellers, and they are huge. They are like stories high. Each blade and each fin that's made out of metal, and they they they. You know, the engines to drive those things. Wow, talk about huge as well. But then you look at the rudder and you think, what? Really? No, come on, you're kidding me. Surely when they put it in the water, they must extend it or make something bigger. No, no, they don't. (laughs) The rudder is tiny. It has some massive, massive effects. I always get perplexed when you're in a canoe and uh, you might be paddling along and then you just put a finger in the water. And you start turning just from a finger. It's, it's pretty amazing how something so small has such a massive impact. The tongue, one of the smaller organs of the body, has a similar control over everything a person is and does. See, boasting in pride is, is a major cause of the misuse of the tongue. And, and James continues his teaching about this small little tongue causing so much strife, beginning now with the imagery of fire, as the tongue is presented in all its terrible potential in verses 5 through 8. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Amen. Let's end it here. No, no seriously, like, how, how terrible would it be if that was like where we finished up today? Because there's no hope in that. What does James do? He brings us Hope. So let's see how this uh, works for us. Because the small fire is the proud boast or, or, or other misuse of the tongue. And the great forest fire is the resulting inferno. You know, all it takes to spark a massive forest fire is literally just a spark. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how massive some fires can be from a piece of glass that has been left discarded and the sun bears down on that and creates the magnifying effect that sparks a fire that can destroy thousands of hectares of forest. The tongue represents and puts into expression all the wickedness of the world. 
We all experience the ups and downs of life. That seems to be our cycle of existence. The tongue turns upside down every aspect of life in the community as well as in the individual. Evil speech destroys because it comes from Satan himself. So we should be on our guard. We should choose to use our tongues wisely to bring healing, to bring health, to bring restoration, to bring wholeness rather than to light fires and destroy so many good things in other people's lives. You know, I've come across many studies that talk of the impact that positive words have on us when directly compared with negative words. Most of these studies conclude that it takes somewhere, you know, about one negative comment to burn deep inside someone. But on average, it takes around 10 positive comments before we even hear the positive, let alone let it sink in. And it seems like we're almost designed to feel those negative comments, those, those harsh words, those lies, those insults, those criticisms. It almost seems our sinful natures enhance the effect of sinful words and so they hurt so much. They cut so deeply and we feel them so strongly. But on the flip side, we hardly even take notice of when someone says something nice to us, when they compliment us, when they encourage us. We tend to just brush it aside, not even paying attention often to what is being said. Yet how much better would it be if we flipped this around? You know, if we felt the positive words so deeply, as deeply we, as we, we seem to do the hurtful words, surely we'd be in a much more beautiful world if this was the case. But sadly, that's not the world we live in. And so we must then be vigilant in how we use our words so that people hear those 10 positive things and not the negative. Even though they are such tiny things, words have some of the biggest impact. Have I told you the story of how I once went for a jog? <laughs> it was in, we were in Tasmania. Thanks, thanks Faye. I, I, it, it, Bill was like, one? One jog? Well, you, you'll probably understand why in a moment. But I thought, look, beautiful sunny day in Tasmania, in Hobart, which were, there were lots of them, by the way, not many rainy ones. Um, and I thought I'll head down to, like, near where the casino is, right down on the Derwent River. There's, a, 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 a like, a footpath that runs right along, you know, you've got rock, stone in, right into the water. And it, so, so you, you know, you, you're this far above the water, and it's just a beautiful place to go for a jog. So I drove down there, and, and I, you know, was in my sort of fitness gear, just imagine, oh, just, you know, just like a Greek Adonis, yeah. Um, and I started going for a job, uh, for a jog. And I was jogging along the foreshore and I was quite enjoying it. Weird, I know, right? And then the, this Commodore pulled up, right, R- right beside me. P-plates on, real big loud engine, and there's four blokes inside and they all get out, keep running, fatty! So what did I do? No, 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 I used those words, I internalised them, I used them as fuel, and I was like, no, I'm not going to be beaten by that, and I kept going. No, I stopped. I turned around, got in my car, went home. That's words. We're warned that no human being can tame the tongue. What words have hurt you? What words have sunk that you've, you've felt, that you've never let go? What words did a parent or a friend or someone close to you say that, that just cut? You, you're not good enough. You can't do that. You're not worthy. You're too fat. You're too short. We've heard them all, haven't we? They do hurt. And we've even heard them from people who have well-meaning intentions. 
maybe we need to really think about how we use our words. Because I know a God who is mighty in power and who works in us and through us and who brings us hope where there is none. James continues in verse 9. With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth water from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So James gives us some beautiful contrasts and illustrations that drive home the point that blessings that they're blessing God with our mouths when we gather together in worship and then saying bad things about people with that very same mouth cannot be tolerated. First, he raises springs. You know, springs were a key to survival in dry Palestine and the placement of villages and towns tended to depend on their presence. Their water brought life to these villages and towns and without these springs there wouldn't be a way to support livestock let alone human civilization. The fresh water from these springs are what brought life into this region. But if we were to compare that with a spring that brought salt water, well that would be not only completely useless but in fact it would be the opposite of life. It would actually bring destruction. And our tongues can do the same thing. They can bring life with one sentence and can bring harm with another. James is saying that there is no place for both. Just as a spring can't produce sweet water and bitter, our tongues shouldn't either. And James goes on and with the example of bearing fruit. Can a fig tree make olives or a grapevine bear figs? Just as no tree would produce two kinds of fruit unless there's some real weird witchcraft and you know, what's that stuff, grafting things, you know. Um, So also a true believer would not produce both blessings of God and curses towards others. You know, that's a real challenge for us to use our tongues wisely, to use our words with wisdom and thought, to use words that bring life like the sweet water of a spring rather than cursing hurt and pain. Then maybe we can be the type of people who choose wisely when we respond to circumstances before us, who choose godly wisdom over our earthly tendencies to fly off the handle or say something hurtful. Maybe we can bridle our tongue and bring it under the control and lordship of Jesus Christ and maybe our wise words will bring hope. That is our challenge for today. Let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, We come before you today with the deep challenge of choosing how we respond to do that with wisdom and particularly with our words. Lord, I pray for a greater understanding of our fellow human beings. I ask for a greater understanding of those who we are in relationship with so that we can understand how not only our words impact them, but Lord, we can be people who bring hope with our words rather than hurt that we can bring freedom where once there is slavery, where we can bring wholeness where once there was a hole, where we can bring life and sweet water where once it was bitter. Lord, may we use our words to help bring your godly wisdom into this world and with that bring hope. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.